According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are here this morning for the purpose of growth. Turn in the scriptures to Luke chapter 1, taking a look at verses 26 through 38. I do have four more copies of our Harmony of the Gospels down here in the front. If you do not have one, you can pick one up at the end of class. You won't necessarily need it for this morning. But just to uh, keep track of where we are in the life of Christ, we're still very early. Uh, some of these first sections um, in uh, dealing with a lot of the introductory material are going to go a lot slower. I think once we hit the Galilean ministry, we start to get into the the actual nitty-gritty of the of the ministry itself, I think we will see some things speed up quite a bit. Otherwise, it's kind of, uh, if we take four lessons per point in that outline, this is about a 45-year study. So I don't, uh, <laughs> I, don't in, I don't anticipate living that long, so that's right. <laughs> All right. Well, Luke chapter 1, then. Let's take time for silent prayer and assure that we are prepared to study the Word of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. And we do ask for your hand and blessing upon our study this morning. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Looking at the uh, announcement of the birth to Mary in verses 26 through 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. And that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Uh, which we understand from the immediate context, looking back up there, that in verse 24, after these days Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, and then now in the sixth month. So we recognize that the context of the passage tells us um, when these things are taking place as they relate to uh, Elizabeth's pregnancy, not in the calendar of the year. You can't use this to try to pinpoint Mary's pregnancy and try to pinpoint the birth of Christ. All right, so far we have given you three, no, two points of study from this outline. And uh, I won't reread all the way back down through verse 38. We did that last week. Uh, first of all, we dealt with a study on the land of Galilee, that it was virtually ignored in the Old Testament. We did point out one significant prophecy that addressed Galilee of the Gentiles in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And... Uh, that's worth looking at again here this morning. So join me there at Isaiah chapter 9. So much of what our study will entail in the life of Christ is actually going to be taught out of the Old Testament. And perhaps no book will be addressed more from the Old Testament than the book of Isaiah. All right, Isaiah chapter 9. Obviously we have Isaiah 7.14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. We understand that prophecy, but we also have prophecy in chapter 9, chapter 11. Uh, throughout the book of Isaiah, we have prophecies fulfilled in the first advent of Jesus Christ, as well as prophecies yet unfulfilled because they apply to second advent of Jesus Christ. All right, Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. Clearly, the northern tribes uh, had no significant events 
uh, take place throughout the Old Testament, certainly nothing close to what the southern tribes had, uh, and yet... Later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. And it goes on to describe this. Taking us all the way down to verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. So now the land of Zebulun and the land of uh, uh, Naphtali that are mentioned here in Isaiah 9.1, this is the northern region, the northern tribes of Israel, when the twelve tribes were settled under Joshua. This is what corresponds in the New Testament times to the land of Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles, as it says. Now, um, under this, we observe the fact that this prophecy appears to contradict the Bethlehem prophecy. We described how it was that we have Old Testament prophecy that relates to Bethlehem as his birthplace. And yet we also have this reference here to Galilee of the Gentiles, the land of, of Zebulun and Naphtali being the, the source of this tremendous light that shines forth. Uh, we also have uh, a prophecy in Hosea, out of Egypt I shall call my son. So we have different geographical references that appear to be uh, contradicting. They appear to be confusing and they would lead the person ahead of time uh, to wonder how is this all going to work out. Now we have the advantage of looking back and we understand that Jesus Christ was born in, in uh, Bethlehem, so that fulfills the Bethlehem prophecy, that he was then directed, Joseph was then directed to take his family and flee to Egypt while uh, Herod was murdering all the babies there in Bethlehem. And then after the death of Herod, uh, Joseph was then called out of Egypt. So out of Egypt I called my son is perfectly fulfilled, and, and we see how these things go. But he didn't return back to Bethlehem. When he came out of Egypt, they rather they settled in Nazareth. They settled in Galilee. So that when he came forth at the age of 30 to be baptized at the Jordan River, he was coming forth out of the land of Galilee, out of the, the tribal areas here of Zebulun and Naphtali and fulfilling what Isaiah 9 says about the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. So, they're all fulfilled, and they're all fulfilled perfectly. We're going to give you a number of handouts with maps and so forth in the process of this study. Secondly, Solomon didn't regard Galilean cities as worth keeping. And uh, he tried to give the cities away as a gift to Hiram of Tyre. When King Hiram of Tyre provided all the, the cedar and the, the lumber for the, uh, for the temple and for Solomon's palace as a, as a gift, Solomon tried to present Hiram with some Galilean cities. And uh, this is described in 1 Kings 9 and verse 11, and Hiram wasn't very impressed with them. <laughs> Yeah, you can tell neither. I mean, Solomon wasn't impressed with him. He was trying to give him away. And uh, Hiram wasn't impressed with him because he, he, he told Solomon, basically, he says, I'm insulted by this gift. What are you trying to give me? Thirdly, the Pharisees likewise, this is some point C now under point one, the Pharisees likewise regarded Galilee with contempt. They even had a proverb that they created and that's recorded in John 7.52, Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. That became, their, that became their proverb. That became their byword. And at least one apostle had issues with the Galilean village of Nazareth, John 1.46, and that was the mocking scorn. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
So it kind of shows you how, in what poor reputation Galilee was, uh, was considered. There is a side note with respect to this. The Pharisees' proverb is actually inaccurate. Elijah and Jonah were both prophets from Galilee that are attested to in the Scripture. Very well-known prophets. Both Elijah and Jonah were Galileans. That is to say, they arose from the tribal areas of Old Testament Israel that in later years would be known as Galilee. Okay? They weren't strictly speaking Galileans because that region was not yet known as Galilee. Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> so, Elijah and Jonah were both prophets from Galilee attested to in the scripture. Later rabbis will admit that prophets arose from every tribe in Galilee. There were Naphtali prophets. There were Zebulun prophets. There were Issachar prophets. There were Gad prophets. Benjamin prophets. Ephraim prophets, for example. Just because their name does not appear in Scripture, just because they didn't write a book of the Bible, does not mean that there were not prophets existent from those particular tribes. Alright? Point two. We looked at Gabriel and his appearance to the Virgin. And we spent a little bit of time last week, as we were running out of time, breaking down the vocabulary here. The Parthenos in Greek is a virgin. P-A-R-T-H-E-N-O-S, Parthenos. It's a virgin. We uh, did go into some Old Testament vocabulary as well under subpoint A. In Isaiah 7.14, it is a alma. And that's apostrophe A-L-M-A-H. A alma. Behold, a alma will bear a child. Will conceive and bear a child. All right? And the Alma, 59-59, there's a lot of focus on that word. In fact, you can search theological journals and find that more and more articles have been written on that one word, focusing on the Alma. And some critics and skeptics will attack it and say, it does not necessarily mean that the, the, the girl involved was a virgin. That if Isaiah wanted to make it crystal clear that he was talking about a virgin, he would have used the Hebrew Bethula, for example, rather than Alma. And um, it's really a weak argument because it's based on a lexical definition to begin with as opposed to usage. And then it's been answered, I think, quite adequately that um, that even the term Bethula would have still opened the, the concept up to questions. And... Um, and that in the in the immediate context of Isaiah 7, as we just turn over there to Isaiah 7, we'll take a look at it, that had the uh, that had the girl, in fact, not been a virgin, then Alma itself would have been inappropriate. So, I think that the argument is rather weak, and it simply shows the efforts of, of many to try to discredit the the uh, the miraculous nature of the birth of Christ. So the Alma of Isaiah 7.14 may be lexically applied to a young woman of marriageable age, virgin or not, but the Parthenos is most certainly a virgin. That is without dispute. Um, as it says here, in verse 11, the Lord tells Ahaz, he says, ask a sign for yourself. In other words, demand a miracle. Now, we're not supposed to do that. We're told you shall not put the Lord God to the test. So, on a daily basis, we don't, we don't typically do this, and we're told not to. But when God tells us to, 
then we better obey what God's telling us to do. And Ahaz says, oh, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I won't, I won't te- ask. I'm not going to test the Lord, which by default is what he's doing by disobeying the Lord. God's saying here, ask a miracle. And Ahaz says, oh, no, no, I don't want to do that. And so uh, he's, he's trying to cover under a religious blanket saying, I don't want to put the Lord God to the test. But that's exactly what he's doing by defying the Lord and not asking for a miracle like he's told to do. And he says, make it as deep as shale or as high as heaven. In other words, an infinite proportion. Ahaz, you can make this miracle as impossible as you want it to make. Make this miracle as impossible as you'd like. And when he won't do it, he says, all right, I'll do it for you then. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Since you're not going to ask, since you're not going to make up something so impossible that God can't even do it, theoretically, right? <laughs> I'll, I'll show you something that's very impossible. A virgin will conceive and bear, bear a sign. The greatest miracle in the history of the universe. Described right here. So, clearly... The Alma, in this context, has to be a virgin, just like the Parthenos of Luke has to be a virgin, because otherwise, if she's not a virgin, then where's the miracle? Where's the miracle? This has to be a birth. This has to be a pregnancy and a birth that does not involve the human sexual activity. That's what makes it miraculous. If this is just simply a young girl getting pregnant because she has intercourse, then where's the miracle? Big deal. That's been happening ever since Adam and Eve. <laughs> you know? No big deal there. Happens every day. So, what I'm trying to say with this, and I, and I probably overemphasized it last week and again here this morning, that trying to make an argument that a, that an Alma does not have to be a virgin, just as a matter of vocabulary, is, is rather weak when, uh, when it's used clearly in this context here, when it's used obviously in this, uh, in this light. I think it's uh, very weak indeed. Returning back now to Luke, not only is she called a Parthenos, as I return back to Luke chapter 1, not only is she called a Parthenos, but in verse 34, she goes on to say that she does not have sex. So that spells it out too. See... uh, if all we're doing is reading the English text, then we might think that it's the same phrase in verse 27 that we have in verse 34. Because in verse 27 it says that uh, the angel Gabriel came uh, to a virgin engaged to a man. And then in verse uh, 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And if all we're doing is reading the English Bible, then we might think that verse 27 and verse 34 are you know, the same, but they're not. In verse 30, uh, 27, we have the Parthenos. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a Parthenos engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. All right, There she's called a Parthenos. She's called a virgin. But in verse 34, and it really bugs me that, that they made these verses so similar in translation because they're not similar in, uh, in the Greek. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since... I do not know a man. In other words, I do not have sex. Mary specifically states that she does not know a man. And in the Greek, we have andra ugenosko. And this is not uh, this is not anthropos, man or mankind in general. The andra here is male gender. Is man distinct from woman, the male gender, man or even husband. 
And ugonosko uh, is interesting, the uk negative there, and then gnosko is in the present tense. Present tense expresses continuous ongoing action in present time. And so by saying ugonosko, she's saying, I do not know, I am not now knowing, I do not continuously know. In other words, this is not my, uh, this is not my manner of life. I do not know a man. This, of course, is a Hebraism from the Old Testament. In the Hebrew, yadat, to know, was uh, utilized most frequently uh, of the, the, the sexual activity. And so she says here, I do not know a man. I do not, I am not sexually active. I do not participate in this activity. So we have the noun parthenos followed by the verbal description here in verse 34, making it crystal clear. And obvious. And uh, as we observed a couple weeks back in uh, our examination of the Mariology of the Roman Catholic Church, when we glance back to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 25, Matthew 1 verses 24 and 25, it says that Joseph took Mary as his wife. In other words, he married her. Uh, they had previously been engaged. The contract had been agreed to. The, the uh, gifts and, and bride uh, dowries had been exchanged. But um, they had not yet had the ceremony and had, had not yet obviously consummated the marriage, which happens after the ceremony. In this case, though, they went ahead and, and hurriedly got a ceremony taken care of so that uh, she was legally not just an espoused wife, but in fact a, uh, a, a literal wife having gone through the ceremony. But then he did not consummate it because of the pregnancy and because of the commandment. And it says that he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And that gives us the end, that shows us the end duration of Joseph's uh, patience or <laughs> Joseph's forbearance as it were and that after the birth of Jesus Christ then Joseph was no longer keeping her a virgin in other words that they went on to have a normal marriage they had other children and uh, and there and that's that's just black and white plain language of, of the scripture so enough there on virginity I think we've dealt with that clear enough under point three now I want to deal with the salutation that's here, because this again takes us back into more Mariology, Mariolatry, I call it. Mariolatry is simply Mary idolatry. And that's not my term, that's a common term. Mariolatry refers to the practice of the Roman Church to exalt Mary in an idolatrous manner. That's why you have so many that are praying to Mary, so many that have the Mary images, so many that, that do all these things. That's Mariolatry. And much of it stems from these, from this verse here. Alright, Luke 1, 28 and 29. Coming in, this is Gabriel now. Coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. This is where we get our Hail Mary full of grace. Alright, or not ours, but the, the Catholics, Hail Mary full of grace. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement. <laughs> Alright, which I find quite interesting and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. It's interesting. He tells her, Stop being afraid. What, uh, she was not only perplexed, but rather startled and frightened over this whole concept of being a favored one, and uh, who this angel even was that was, that was speaking with her. 
Subpoint A. Greetings, favored one. Greetings, favored one. Subpoint A. We will examine the phrase greetings, favored one. All right, greetings, favor one. Now, the, the greetings is simply evocative of address. It's the evocative of charis, uh, which is grace. And um, I'll underline it here. It's kyre, right here. Standard greeting. If you were to meet someone on the street and say hello, you say grace, you say greetings, kyra. But the, the title that he gives her here, the name that he calls her, is this, is this mouthful right here. Very, very long. He calls her Tekaratomene. He says, Kyra, Tekaratomene. And she was left perplexed. Kind of like you're left perplexed. <laughs> right here at this moment. All right? But I'm going to spell some things out here. Okay? Um, and it might be a little light in here this morning. Can't help that. But... Um, what we have here, the, the, the verb that kekaratomene is built upon is this one under here, karatao. All right, karatao. C-H-A-R-I-T-O-O. It's got the O-O ending with the short O and the long O, the omicron and the omega. This is the omicron, this is the omega. So you have karatao. C-H-A-R-I-T-O-O. Number 5487 in the Strong's Index. Now, karatao... Just like kyre comes from grace, so too does karatao come from a basic stem of grace. C-H-A-R-I-S, grace. And all we've really done is we've, we've duplicated this first sound here on the front. We added the K in front to duplicate the, the C-H sound here. So we have ke karatomene. What we've ended up with now is a participle of karatao. And you see that listed right here. A perfect passive participle. And this may bore you to tears, but I'm going to show you why it's important. Okay? A perfect passive participle. In the passive, it means Mary didn't do a single thing to, to deserve this. <laughs> Alright? Mary didn't even engage in any activity to bring this about. In the passive voice, she simply received the effects of the action. God Himself is the bestower of grace. God Himself is the bestower of grace. Alright? Now, if karatao means in, uh, to endow with grace, to bestow grace upon somebody, in the passive means that she has had grace bestowed upon her. That she has had grace bestowed upon her. And it's interesting, in the perfect passive participle, what we have is we have a, uh, a past completed action, which we draw with a dot, followed by a present ongoing, even eternal results. And that's what has happened here. The past completed action is that in eternity past, God the Father determined that Mary of, of Nazareth was going to be the mother of the uh, human body of the hypostatic union, Jesus Christ. And having uh, been endowed by that grace provision, Mary is now selected as the mother, we say, of the human body of the hypostatic union, Jesus Christ. Now, as we deal with this, we see that we have grace that's described twice. He greets her with grace, with Kyra, and he calls her a graced one under Karatao. The only other place in Scripture, I think it's only two places in Scripture where we have it, is here and in Ephesians 
I could be wrong on that, but I, if my memory serves, these are the only two places with karatao. Ephesians 1.6 Because we ourselves are kekaratomene. We ourselves have had grace bestowed upon us. It says, blessed be, in verse 3 of Ephesians, Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, now this is God the Father's grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved One. Alright? So there we are in verse 6. You and I have become recipients of His grace. He freely bestowed upon us just as He freely bestowed grace upon Mary. He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved One, that is, in Christ. Although this uh, title, Favored One, or this title, Karatomene, uh, uh, may be rather unusual, may be rather unique, and up to that point of time was something entirely new that Mary wouldn't understand, at least not without some teaching, yet now, in the dispensation of the church, has become a concept that is applied to everybody. You and I are each, because we're in Christ, everything that's applied here from verses 3 through 6 applies to us. That we ourselves are now, you can think of yourself as a favored one. I might even greet you tomorrow by, or tonight by saying, Hail favored one. Right? Because Ephesians 1 6 applies to each one of us. So I can walk up to you and say, Kaira kekaratamai, or kekaratomene. I could address you as hail favored one. And you would have the doctrine to understand that yes, according to Ephesians 1.6, God the Father has freely bestowed His grace upon us in the Beloved One. So, rather than take this verse and say, this is now exalting Mary as uh, the Queen of Heaven, as the greatest human being, almost divine, which is what the Romans do, um, I think we can put this in its proper context and recognize that she was chosen because of grace. And if there was anything that she earned or anything that she deserved, then it's not grace. You throw grace totally out the window if you deal with something that's earned or deserved. And the Scripture says that. If, if you've earned it, then it's not grace. It's, it's your wages. It's something that you're due or you're entitled. But if you haven't earned it, it's grace. Secondly, the phrase B. I'm sorry, a comment on this Hail Mary full of grace. The Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the, of the Bible. The Vulgate here has gratiae plena, full of grace. Now it is right if it means full of grace which thou hast received. Because that's what the text says. It's in a perfect passive participle, you have received this grace. The Vulgate, gratia plena, is right if it means full of grace which thou hast received. However, it is wrong if it means full of grace which thou hast to bestow. Okay? Because that's how the Catholics take it. 
Hail Mary, full of grace. In other words, she has an infinite supply of grace which she can then distribute to the faithful Catholics that are doing the rosary, to faithful Catholics that are praying to her and asking for her to give them grace. Remember, in the Roman church, Mary is the dispenser of all grace. If you want grace, you've got to pray the rosary, you've got to ask to Mary, and Mary will give you grace because she is Hail Mary, full of grace. All right? This is a quote, by the way, from A.A. Plummer, International Critical Commentary. The Vulgate Gratiae Plena is right if it means full of grace which thou hast received. That's why I took the time to show you the perfect passive participle of karatao. Why I took the time to show you that in the passive voice it is a received action. It is wrong if you take full of grace to mean full of grace which thou hast to bestow. And that's how the Roman church takes it. That if I want any kind of grace, grace in my marriage, grace in my business, grace in my family, grace for my kids, grace for my departed loved ones, uh, if I'm trying to pray them out of purgatory and get them into heaven, okay, like the Catholics do so much, then I've got to go to Mary to get the grace to do these things because she is the dispenser of all grace in the Roman theology. B. I thought I had a B. Oh, my goodness. I'm missing some slides. Oh, that's terrible. Okay. Well, I'm missing some slides. Before I get to point four, then. All right. I got a B. So point B. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Now, she's not even pregnant yet, (laughs) but the Lord is with her. Because, of course, God the Son is preexistent. God the Son is eternal. He has been with even his own mother all her life. (laughs) And uh, let me get up here to this. Verse 28. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And it's, uh, again, present tense. Um, it's uh, even the verb. Here it is. Ha curios metasu. Even the verb is rather implied rather than directly stated. Ha curios, the Lord, metasu, with you. And it can be a statement as it's rendered here. The Lord is with you. It could even be a prayer. May the Lord be with you. Uh, it could be a desire. But it does indicate that in the framework of Mary being an object of grace, that her blessings are entirely related to the presence of the Lord. That she has no grace, no blessings apart from the Lord. That she's not a dispenser of grace because she's the mother of the Lord, but that she is the mother of the Lord, that is His human body, because she has been selected by grace. Because the Lord is with her. That the Lord precedes her. I hope we can keep these. I don't think we'll have any trouble keeping these things in proper perspective. Alright. Again, the phrase, the Lord is with you. That's subpoint B under point two. I'm sorry, under point three. The Lord is with you. Hakirios metasu. The Lord is with you. Indicates the context in which those grace blessings are received. 
And where are our grace blessings received? Remember the grace which God the Father freely bestowed upon us? In the Beloved One. In the Beloved One, that is Christ. So, all of Mary's grace blessings come because of Christ. All of our grace blessings come because of Christ. All anybody's grace blessings come because of Christ. We don't earn or deserve a thing. Then subpoint C, Mary's confusion over the salutation led to much pondering. Mary's confusion over the salutation led to much pondering. Again, point C, Mary's confusion over the salutation led to much pondering. We have statements similar to this throughout the uh, gospel record as far as Mary. Mary is quite a ponderer, if you're not aware of that. She, uh, remember, she is a young girl. Although she does have a tremendous amount of doctrine already, even at her young age, we don't know how old she was. It's likely that she was 14, 16, perhaps even as young as 12. Hard to say when marriage contracts were arranged and then when marriages were were then uh, uh, consummated and so forth. But when you look down to verse 46 and following, Mary sings a song here composes a psalm similar to the Old Testament psalms, and there is a tremendous amount of doctrine in there. And, I, and we'll be there next week and we'll look at it, um, but the, the, the scripture that she quotes, the application that she makes, the understanding of Old Testament teaching, uh, if she didn't know her Bible, she, how, she couldn't have written this psalm. But just read through verses 46 through 55 and you get an amazing insight into her knowledge of Scripture. Just like if you look down at verses 68 and following, down through 79, you realize all of the content that Zacharias had. Zacharias had, a, had an in-depth understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures, of the prophecies concerning the Christ. And so we have it there. When it comes to Mary's pondering... Um, Turn over to chapter 2 and you can see after the Jerusalem incident uh, when he's in the temple and he says in verse 49, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And you'll notice verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Mary had a wonderful personality trait that when she didn't understand something, she'd just keep chewing on it. She would just keep chewing on it. Like in chapter 1, she's perplexed, so she ponders these things. In chapter 2, she treasures them in her heart. She knows that there's some teaching there. She knows that there's some truth there, but she also knows that she doesn't understand it yet. So she's just going to keep chewing on it. She's going to keep looking at it, keep simmering. Let's like we say, put it on the back burner. You know, just let it, let it simmer for a little bit. Let it, let it stay hot. Stir it up occasionally. Come back to it again. If you don't understand it now, then just keep working on it. The Father will make it clear when you need to know it. And we have, uh, it's just interesting when we see, uh, we see these phrases repeated at various points of time. Alright, point four then. I'll have to see about repairing the slideshow and getting those subpoints in there. Point four. Gabriel announces that Mary's son, 
would be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant promises. Gabriel announces that Mary's son would be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant promises. This is verses 31 through 33 of Luke 1. Gabriel announces that Mary's son would be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant promises. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, compared with 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, and Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Luke 1, 31 through 33, compared with 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, and Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. We are actually quite fortunate to have recently completed the Life of David series before we we began the Life of Christ series. And in the course of teaching Life of David, we taught the Davidic Covenant. And so you have notes on the Davidic Covenant from 2 Samuel 7 that will help you in this. Those notes are also in the Through the Bible notebook that you also have. Let's just look here. Verse 31 Uh, or verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. There's grace again. We had grace twice in verse 28. Now we got grace again in verse 30. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Okay. Now these are, in fact, separate issues. Remember the promise of the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head and to redeem humanity from the fall of sin has nothing at all to do with the house of David. That is the redeemer of the human race. The seed of the woman has to do with the redemption issues and the the deliverance of all the human race from, from the slave market of sin. But the throne of his father David then is over and above the uh, the role of Christ towards all humanity, this is now the role of Christ towards Israel. And to t- totally understand the Son of God is one thing, and then Son of Man is another title, with its orientation to, as the seed of the woman to the entire human race, uh, Son of David, his royal uh, Jewish title. We want to we want to keep keep in our thinking the issues of Son of God, Son of Man, and Son of David. All right, and he's called all three in the in the in the Gospels. So he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Again, the house of Jacob puts it in his Jewish context, his rulership over the nation of Israel. The promises that are being fulfilled here are the promises of the Davidic covenant. Okay? So let's go back now to 2 Samuel 7, remind ourselves of these things. 2 Samuel 7. If you just think your way through the seed of the woman promises... And I've done this so many times now, you're probably sick of hearing it. (laughs) All right? But the very first problem, when Adam and Eve sinned and were driven out of the garden, God didn't just sit down right there with them and, and, and 
make Davidic covenant promises. <laughs> okay? Far too early for that. He made redemption promises. The crushing of the serpent's head. The restoration of, of fallen mankind to a right relationship with God. All right? And then seed of the woman was, was, uh, Proceed in, the, in that promise was then reconfirmed uh, in the descendants of Noah. He had Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And, and which son was it that had the, had the promises confirmed to him? It was Shem. Blessed be the God of Shem. And uh, throughout that whole Semitic line then, we've narrowed the scope for our search for the Christ. And then we're told that it was going to be a descendant of Abraham. In you and in your descendants shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so we're not just looking for any old Semite, any old uh, son of Shem, but we are specifically looking to the descendants of Abraham. Okay, Remember, the Assyrians were also descendants of Shem. <laughs> so just being Semitic doesn't mean that you were necessarily godly. All right. And then on down through the chain, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. We've now excluded the Arabs. We've excluded the Ishmaelites. All right. And then from Jacob, he has 12 sons, but the only one we're concerned about as far as the line of Christ is concerned is Judah. And then starting with that promise, we now start to uh, receive the principle of leadership, of rulership, because it says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. We realize there is a kingship attached to the uh, redeemer function of the Christ. We didn't have any mention of scepter as it applied to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. We didn't have any scepter as it applied to Shem. There was no scepter with the seed of the woman. All there was was simply the crushing of the serpent's head. And the worldwide blessings as promised to Abraham. But now we have a scepter introduced when we have narrowed it down to Judah. And now for our first significant detail beyond the Judah promise is the David promise. So, with each of these stages, we have a, a further limitation, and this, this is uh, just an important thing to look at. Alright? With the seed of the woman, it could have been any human being on earth. Oh, yeah, thank you. Does that work? Alright. With the seed of the woman, it could have been any human being on the, on the planet. You know? Raise your hand if your mom was a woman. <laughs> we all qualify. Alright? And that's why when, he, when Satan was looking at godly Abel and wicked Cain, he, all of a sudden he said, Hey, I know who the seed of the woman is. <laughs> it's not this wicked Cain guy. It's obviously that godly Abel guy. Let's go murder him. Okay, it could have been any seed of the woman. With the, uh, the uh, statement, the God of Shem, we have now narrowed it down to one-third of the human race. We have excluded, who have we excluded? Well, we've excluded Ham and Japheth. We've narrowed the scope as we examine the, the coming of the Christ. Okay. With respect to the God of Abraham... And these phrases, God of, are very important. We have now excluded all the other non-Abrahamic descendants of Shem. Such as uh, um, just all the countless Semites in the world, but they're not of the line of Abraham. Likewise, he is the God of Isaac. He's the God of Jacob. He's the God of... 
And then, after this point of time, the most common title for God in the Old Testament is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is his most common title in the uh, following Exodus chapter 2, is that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we have now excluded Ishmael. We have now excluded uh, Esau. And we have excluded the, uh, the, uh, the sons of Keturah, the Arab tribes of the sons of Keturah, Abraham's wife after Sarah. We are looking for a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, the, the, the kinsman redeemer, when he comes, is going to be a Jew. A descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob who is renamed Israel. The seed of the woman, kinsman redeemer of the human race, will come from Israel. When God starts to make his dealings known to Israel, he lets it be known of the twelve tribes that it would be the tribe of Judah. And not only does he introduce or confirm the, the Redeemer promises, the seed of the woman promises and all of this, but he also adds the issue of a scepter. And we start to get the promises of rule introduced. And so at this stage we have just, we have just uh, excluded the non-Judah tribes of Israel. So we've excluded Reuben and Levi and Simeon and... Dot, dot, dot. All the rest. On down to Benjamin, the baby. Alright? We've excluded every other tribe except Judah. So we're not just looking for any old Jew. We're looking for a Jew from the tribe of Judah. And this promise coming as it is in Genesis 49 is the last narrowing that we have in all of Scripture until... We get to the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then we are added the final name that is given, and that is David. So we're no longer looking within the, the whole tribe of Judah any longer. We are only looking at that portion of Judah that descends from David. All the rest of Judah is no longer in consideration for the Christ. And not only is he going to have a scepter... He is going to have an eternal throne. See, the scepter refers to his dominion over fellow Jews, over the other tribes. But he's going to have an eternal throne, and he's going to build a temple. So we read now in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And verse 12 says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now this, this passage takes us into what we talked about two weeks ago in terms of dual application, because... Part of this passage applies to Solomon. Part of this passage applies to Jesus Christ. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. That's why Solomon was given the name Jedediah at his birth. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. 
But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. In other words, when Solomon screws up, I'm going to stay faithful to him. I'm going to stay with him. I will not take the kingdom away from him like I took it away from Saul. And even after Solomon married a thousand women, even after he built all these cultic places, even after Solomon totally went off the deep end, God stayed faithful with Solomon and waited until Solomon's death before he ripped the kingdom in half and sent the ten northern tribes to the north and the two southern tribes to the south. But then back to Christ in verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. It's not a, not a trick question. How long is forever? God said so forever twice in verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So we have the Davidic covenant. And this is what Gabriel is now promising to Mary. Now, keep in mind that there has been no promise uh, of a name after David having been given. But there is, there are a couple of other references that will come up in between. Okay, this is now, let me change colors. This is now uh, 1000 BC. Okay. In between, shall we say at about 700 BC, we have the prophecy of uh, Isaiah that says, Behold a virgin. So we haven't, that, that narrows it down, doesn't it? <laughs> All right. Not just somebody from the tribe of Judah, but his mother is going to be a virgin. Okay. There's another prophecy given about 6, no, about 590 B.C. by the prophet Jeremiah that is going to uh, be quite interesting, not for today, but deals with a curse of Jeconiah. And it's remarkable, and we'll deal with that next week, because it appears to be a contradiction to the promise of David. He says, uh, he promises David that his line will continue forever. And we have a line of kings after David, from David to Solomon to Rehoboam, on down through the end of the, of the uh, northern kingdom, or the southern kingdom. And then Jeconiah is taken away. Babylon sweeps Jerusalem away. The Davidic throne appears to come to an end. Although Jeconiah still has a son, and he has a son, and he has a son, and he has a son, they never do sit as kings. And you follow that line all the way down, and you get to Joseph of Nazareth, and you get to Jesus of Nazareth. All right? Father to son, father to son, father to son, taking you to Jeconiah, taking you to David. And there is a curse that's pronounced in Jeremiah chapter 7 upon the house of Jeconiah. And so, he has an eternal promise to the house of David, but he pronounces a curse upon Jeconiah. That appears to be a problem. But we'll deal with that. We'll deal with that next week. What I'm trying to say, though, is that when he says to her and he's confirming to her the Davidic covenant and the promises involved here, we understand that this is what we're dealing with in terms of the redemption of the human race, going all the way back to the seed of the woman promise, but also the scepter and the throne of David. And those are two separate items. Okay? 
And by the time Christ is in his full ministry, a lot of the Jews are real excited about the king. They're real jazzed about the coming of the king to throw off Rome and conquer the world and, and, and rule the place. But the idea of the conquering serpent and the idea of removing the sin of the world, um, that wasn't a priority, not for a lot of them. <laughs> okay. Uh, for the, the, the God-fearing, for the humble, for the, the believers, they were looking for that. But for the average, uh, the population of Israel in that day, they, were, they just wanted the political solution. You know, get rid of Rome, conquer the world. So we can take Luke 1, verses 31 through 33, compare it back to 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, and also to remind us of what we dealt with in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is the light that comes out of Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles, the formerly um, overlooked land, the land of contempt, Zebulun and Naphtali. Here comes the glorious light. The great light will shine upon them. And in this, uh, in this process, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. See, God did not forsake the Davidic throne when Nebuchadnezzar swept Jerusalem aside. God did not abandon the Davidic throne. The Davidic throne will be restored. on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That's why any attempt to restore the nation of Israel, to restore um, their government there, is human effort until Jesus Christ returns. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will accomplish this. When, when Ezra and Nehemiah led them back into the land, they did not restore the Davidic throne. The Maccabean era was not a Davidic throne. It was a priest, priestly line. The family of Mattathias, the family of, of Judas Maccabeus, the, the, the hammerer, the great uh, history of the Maccabees, was not a Davidic throne. It was a priest who took who usurped the throne and took took a command of the nation. Jews today consider that their golden age, and in reality, it was a blasphemy. The nation of Israel has been restored since 1946, but they are a democracy today. They are a parliamentary uh, democracy today, with a prime minister and a Knesset uh, cabinet and all the things there. It is not the Davidic throne. Jesus Christ will return and will reestablish the Davidic throne and Israel will once again become salt and light to the nation throughout the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. All right. Next week, we will come back and we will address Mary's question that she asked, how can this be? And then we will spend some time to exegete verse 35 and show you the process. 
And then under point seven, we will return back to virginity a little bit and give the necessity of the virgin birth. Why it is that Jesus Christ had to be born of a virgin. Why it is that he could not have been born through normal human procreation. And we will deal with that. We will give you at least five different reasons why uh, in his human body he had to have been produced through the impregnation of a virgin. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we thank you for this study. Thank you for our Savior. And thank you for the wisdom of your plan that brought these things about. And we thank you for the faithfulness of your plan to bring these things about. We are eagerly looking forward to the day when the Lord himself descends with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And we ask that today might be that day. We say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.